Almighty God, you are our deliverer. You, you indeed sustain and preserve and keep us as we journey through this broken and very difficult world to the celestial kingdom, into your glorious presence, into the heaven that you have promised. Lord, we confess our weariness and, and often overwhelmed hearts as we're so quick to lose sight of your end, your aim, and your kingdom. We're so very busy, so very frantic, assuming we are preserving our own lives so often. We are our own deliverers. Lord, grant us faith and repentance this morning, that we may stop and rest in your sure deliverance, and to rely on your unwavering perseverance in our lives. Thank you for sustaining us this past week. We're seldom, we are seldom like those who come back and give thanks to you. So this morning, Father, we want to come and we want to say thank you for blessing us this past week. Thank you for keeping us from the physical harm and the amazing suffering that we see all around us. Thank you that you have done more than just kept us and preserved us from physical harm, but you have, most holy Father, you have kept us from falling away from your preserving presence. You've sustained us spiritually. You've caused us not to fall away. We confess, Lord, we're so much like little children who are constantly trying to push away and pull our hand out of your hand. We want to be so independent and yet unaware of the ferocious and furious danger that's all around us. Father, thank you for insisting on holding our hand when we have done everything to try to pull away. Because you're a God who preserves. You're a God who keeps your people. You're a God who is tenacious in your love and compassion toward us. And so in your amazing mercy and your compassion, you have brought us here this morning that we may hear your word. Cause it, Father, to bear much fruit. Grant us ears to hear and eyes to see that your glory, the glory of Christ, may be reveled in this morning. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Last week, last week was the sad, horrific 43rd anniversary of Roe versus Wade, which is a court ruling in our country that legalized the killing of infants. And as we look at our text this morning in Exodus 1 and looking into Exodus 2, we're reminded of the fact that this horror is not a new one for God's people or for humanity, but that we, like the people in the book of Exodus, are God's people who are trying to live in a fallen, profoundly broken world 
and trying to figure out how to do this in a way that brings honor and glory to the Lord. And what we'll find, brothers and sisters, is that their hopelessness and their despair in our passage is so very much like ours today. And yet God proves himself in this passage and throughout our Bibles to be a God who is there and who will preserve us, who will keep us, who will deliver us. Pharaoh's plan in chapter 1 to stop the multiplication of the Jews, which was a blessing that God had placed upon his people, his promise to multiply them and make them fruitful and to cause them to fill the earth, was one that Pharaoh was trying to make to cease. And so he put God's people into slavery, plan one, they continue to multiply. So he told the midwives to start killing all of the children or the male children um, while they were being born. Plan number two failed. At the end of chapter 1, verse 22, it says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every all of his people, not just his leaders, but all of his people, and he said to them, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So now the edict has gone out to every Egyptian that if they see a male child, they're to throw this male child into the Nile. Genocide. This is the background of this desperate and hopeless hour that God's people find themselves in. And it's in the midst of this that God shows himself to be very strong in Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, to not only provide deliverance for God's people, but hear me, God is going to provide them a deliverer. God is preserving a deliverer in Moses. And what we find is that as we look at this text and as God's people throughout the history has looked at this text, they have seen that God is mighty and strong and sure in his keeping of his promises, specifically in that he's not only going to deliver his people, but he's going to do it through this deliverer, in this case, Moses. Now, Moses' birth is not extraordinary in the sense that There's no um, extraordinary miracles that are around his birth. Many of those that we find in Scripture that are born, that are leaders, we find amazing miracles, um, things that are just unexplainable scientifically uh, that are happening around their life. Moses is not this way. But what we do find isn't extraordinary miracles, but we do find incredible and extraordinary providences that are taking place in the midst of this story in verses 1 through 10. And we find God doing this again like he did last week. He's doing these extraordinary and amazing things. This morning we're going to notice through three unnamed women. (laughs) Three unnamed women. Three ladies that God decides to use to preserve the one who would deliver his people in an amazing way. A mother, a sister, and a daughter are the titles that are given to us. 
And again, as we found last week, again this week, we have these unnamed characters only to get to the end of verse uh, 10 here, chapters, chapter 2, verses 1 two, through 10. And at, <clears throat> at the end, we find at the very end, almost like it's, it's highlighted, underlined, punctuated, it's, it's emphasized for sure, out of all of the unnamed women that are acting throughout verses 1 through 10, we have a name at the end, and it is Moses. Almost as if to say, Moses is the point. <laughs> the ladies that are unnamed were being used in a mighty way by God to bring about this deliverer and to preserve this deliverer. Moses, indeed, is the point for these unnamed ladies. If you will, notice the outline. And I want us to kind of work along in verses 1 through 10. This outline speaks of these unnamed ladies and the emphasis of Moses in relationship to them because it's exactly how the text seems to point us uh, in. So point number one, I want us to notice the courage of Moses' mother. Point number one, the courage of Moses' mother. Verses 1 through 3. The courage of Moses' mother. Point number two. The concern of Moses' sister. Point number two, the concern of Moses' sister. This is verse 4 and also in verse 7. The concern of Moses' sister. And then point number three, the compassion of Pharaoh's daughter. The compassion of Pharaoh's daughter. Verses 5 through 10. The courage of Moses' mother the concern of Moses' sister, and the compassion of Pharaoh's daughter, verses 5 through 10. And let me tell you, my, my plan is to work through these three points fairly quickly this morning, and in the conclusion is going to be about the last half of the sermon. Okay, So let me just let you see that's what I'm going to do, and you'll see why when we get there. First, the courage of Moses' mother. Notice with me verses 1 and 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Notice specifically, if you will, this courage of uh, Moses' mother. She's not mentioned as of yet necessarily, but it notice here it makes a very, distinct, a very clear distinction that <clears throat> this man was of the house of Levi and he married a woman who was also Levite. So there was a pure Levite tribe that was um, here in this marriage. This man and woman married. Um, we know them as Anram, um, which is the father, and Jochebed, which is the mother. We don't get their names here. We get those later, so I'm not going to mention them anymore, really, the rest of the message. But this was the father and mother. Both were Levite heritage. They were, they were Levites, and it's unique because Moses' calling, Moses' role, as we noticed in the passage, is not only one who's going to give us the law. Moses is the one who's going to be giving us the law, which is very much a Levitical responsibility in the tribe of Levi. But it's also one, Moses tells us, and he lays out the framework and establishes for them what they're to be doing in way of worship. He lays out the sanctuary and and communicates how they're supposed to be understanding the sanctuary. So Moses has this particular um, heritage. He's a Levite. Both his mother and father are Levites. And he's going to be the one who's going to be laying out the law, which is what we're going to find in the book of Exodus, as well as the understanding of how God's people are to be worshiping him, the God of heaven, the God of heaven and earth. And so... Here we find specifically in the fact that he has this lineage of Levi that he has the authority and the responsibility to be doing a particular and specific role. So we find that this 
man and woman came together that were married, very common and ordinary. But then in verse 2, the extraordinary begins to happen. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. She hid him for three months. We have here specifically this woman who had a child. And when she had this child, she bore this son. It says, and when she saw that he was a fine child. Do you see that? Now, this doesn't mean, I mean, what mother doesn't look at their child and think they're the most beautiful child on, the, on earth, right? Every mother does that. I mean, even ugly children. I mean, even ugly children, moms think their child is beautiful, right? Just, and that's, that's the way it is. So here, is that, is, that's what, is that what's happening here? Is what it's saying is that she simply, as a mother, showing motherly affection here. Well, the King James translates this as um, it was that she saw that this was a goodly child. The New American Standard communicates that this was a, translates it this way, and, and a beautiful child. <clears throat> the Hebrew word is actually the word for tov, and it's the word for good. And the idea here is interesting because the way it's ordered, it's very similar to what's being spoken of back in Genesis 1 when it says, when she saw that he was was a fine child, or when she saw that he was a good child, she hid him for three months. It's very, it's very, um, very reminiscent of Genesis one that Moses himself wrote, and that these people would have already heard. They would have already heard Genesis. These first hearers of the the Torah or the first five books of the Old Testament, they would have, they would know what Genesis was holding, and they would be thinking about God seeing His creation, and then what did He do after He saw His creation? He declared that it was good. The point here is this, is that when God created everything that he created, the seas and the stars and the sun and all the things, he saw that they were doing the thing that he, he created them to do. They, they, they were called out to do some particular task. And when he created the sun and the lights and the stars, and then he saw them, it says in Genesis 1, when he saw that they were doing and fulfilling the function that God created them to fulfill, he says, this is good. In other words, they're doing that which is good. They were, they're fulfilling the function that God had called them to. So many say, in like way, in like measure, when um, Moses' mother saw Moses and said that he was good, she was saying, God has created him for a unique task and purpose that he's to fulfill. And so this wasn't a simply, I, this is my child, and so I see my child, and my child looks beautiful, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm favoring my child. No, this seems to be an indication that, that Moses' mother saw something unique in way of Moses' calling. And in so doing, it says, the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child or a good child, what did she do? She decided to hide him for three months. Now, the reason we go there, the reason I understand it that way, is because this is exactly how the New Testament authors understood this very thing. So in Hebrews chapter 11, you don't have to turn there, um, I'm going to ask you to turn there later, but you don't have to turn there right now. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, it says this. This is the faith chapter, and he's going through, and, and uh, the preacher of the book of Hebrews, he's going through and talking about these different ones who had faith. <clears throat> and in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, it says this. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. So who's having faith here? Well, his parents are. Because his parents are the ones that were hiding him. Moses' faith wasn't active at this point. 
But it says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months. By whom? By his parents. Why? Because they saw that the child was beautiful. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. So here we see that this, this hiding of Moses and this seeing in Moses that he was a fine child, that he was a good child, that he was, he was one who was supposed to fulfill a particular purpose and a unique calling in his life. When, when, that, when that mother saw this in Moses, this was an act of faith. This was something that was based and rooted and founded in her faith in what the Lord was going to do, as it speaks of here in Hebrews eleven twenty three, They hid the child for three months. Why? Because they saw that the child was beautiful. And it was an issue of faith for them. It was not a stubborn determination to keep my child no matter what, though I'm sure there was plenty of moms that did that during this time. But we have a unique one here where it says that she saw her son, that he was good, he had a unique calling, and by faith she hid him. And so these actions were based on faith that God had a unique purpose for this one, Moses. And so she was courageous. She was courageous. The, thing that, 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 the, the motive that encouraged her being courageous was faith. But I also want you to notice this, the, 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 the way she was courageous, or the actions of, of her being courageous. Verse 3, When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and, with, and pitch, and she put the child in it, and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And so after three months, she couldn't hide him any longer. Many think that at three months, this child was starting to, uh, wanting to cause a lot more noise, was a lot more active, it was more difficult for Moses to be hidden. And so it says here, she took for him a basket. The King James translates this better. Y'all are going to have to mark this down because... You're going to, as, as much as the King James actually translates this better because it translates it as ark. Many of you who grew up using the King James, you recognize this word was, is called ark. Now, given the idea of an ark, you think of something huge, right? Moses wasn't in this huge ark, but this was the same word that's used. It's interesting because this word for basket is used 26 other times. It's used 26 other times in Genesis, verses, Genesis chapter 6 through 9. And then it's only used here in verse 3 and in verse 5 and nowhere else in the Bible. It's clear that what Moses was trying to do is say that in the same way that the mother was placing this baby in this ark or in this basket was for the purpose of this child to be saved and delivered from death in the same way that God placed Noah in the ark, in this big box, so that Noah and his family would be saved from what? From death. And so the parallels here are connecting up with the book of Genesis, which, think about it, it's the only Bible they had. Those who were the first listeners of the book of Exodus, the only Bible they had was Genesis. The only thing they knew was Genesis at this time. And so it's connecting to Genesis in this way, this ark or this basket that the mother was placing. She saw, she saw by putting him in this basket that it was God who would have to deliver this child because this child had a unique calling, a unique, a unique thing that God wanted to do with this child. Did the mom know to what extent that this was going to happen? Probably not. But she saw him, that he was good, that there was a calling on his life, that God wanted to use him. And after three months, she realized she couldn't hide him anymore, so she placed him in this ark, it says, or the basket, 
in so doing, knowing that God would deliver this child in the same way that Noah was delivered from death in a sure way. Notice that it says also that she placed him among the reeds in the riverbank. She was courageous in the sense that we see, we've seen a lot of movies or maybe even cartoons where mom places the, the basket in the, in the Nile. And the Nile is like the white rapids, you know, and the, and the basket gets swept off and then there's crocodiles snapping at it, okay? A passage says that she placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, okay? The best we can tell is that she was not just kind of tossing it out there and saying, good riddance. No, the idea was she was placing it among the reeds, meaning this was, this was water that probably wasn't moving fast, if at all. And it was among the reeds in the sense that it was more than likely stationary. And she was doing it for a particular reason. It says she placed it among the riverbank. And it was obvious that it was a place where people regularly came and bathed, because that's what ends up happening. And so she was very courageous and very intentional, very deliberate in her bringing this basket and putting it in a, in a place where this child could be delivered. She wasn't sending him off to death. She was sending him for the purpose of being delivered. So, nonetheless, we cannot, it cannot diminish, we cannot diminish the fact that this mom left her baby in a basket in denial. What courage? What faith? Every single mom here this morning will have to or has at some point had to come to this period in their life where they had to make the decision to let their child go and to declare in their own heart this has been God's child all along. This child will never be preserved if I keep him or her close to me. But this child is best preserved. This child can best be used by God as I let him or her go to do what God's called him or her to do. This mom had that in her heart. A lot of other things, but at least this in her heart. And she was courageous. She was courageous to trust the Lord. By faith, know that God had called this child to do something unique and particular and in so doing, acted in a courageous way by placing this baby, Moses, in an ark, in a basket, in the river for the purpose of letting him go, that God may do what God desires to do. In other words, brothers and sisters, I want you to notice the courage of Moses' mother, and I want you to see that God uses Moses' mother to preserve Moses. And it wasn't by Moses' mother saying, I'm going to hold on tight no matter what. The way God preserved Moses was by Moses' mother letting, her, letting him go, placing him in the basket and letting him go. Now, there wasn't a good riddance. But in fact, what we find, though we don't see it in the text, we don't see that Moses' mother actually left the older sister there to take care of things. That's not in the text. All we find is that she was left there and that she was watching over the child. So number two, I want you to notice the concern of Moses' sister. Verse 4, And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. This little girl, this young lady, we'll find out later, it's actually Miriam, uh, Exodus fifteen twenty. She's unnamed at this point. She's an older sister. However, here's the, here's the age bracket that we have. She's old enough to be responsible to watch after the child. 
to, to watch after Moses in this basket. But she's not old enough to be either working out in the field or to be assumed to be the mother. See how that works? And so most then say that she's probably anywhere from 9 to 11. That's kind of the age that this sister probably was. Somewhere around there, and it's a guess, but the child could not be one that was so young that she would not have been able to, um, you know, she interjects herself in in verse 7 in a way that's pretty astounding. Um, She interjects herself and says in verse 7, Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And so we know that this child is old enough and mature enough to be able to interject herself specifically with the Pharaoh's daughter, but she's not old enough where the Pharaoh's daughter or any of her ladies that were around her assumed that she was the mother. Motherhood happened not at, in their mid-20s during this time. It happened at a much younger age. And so the idea here is that she was probably between 9 and 13 we see she had an, uh, an interesting concern, but this interesting concern was combined with an unusual maturity so that she was not threatening. See, if the mother had stayed there, if the mother had stayed there, and when the, in the, Pharaoh, the Pharaoh's daughter had mentioned something, she says, well, I can nurse the baby. I mean, you see how that, that would have been a little awkward. That, that would have almost been threatening. But the, the sister staying there, God used that in an amazing way. Used this sister, this young Sister who loved her little brother and was watching over him to not be threatening, but instead it was, a, it was seen as a genuine, a genuine petition for assistance. And so we see the concern of Moses' sister. <clears throat> Young people in this room, and there are several, many of you assume that God is going to use you someday later. That God will be using you at some point later on in your life. And he's preparing you now that later he'll use you in an amazing way. Never underestimate how God may be able to use you at the age that you're at in the family that God's placed you in to love those who are around you and to care for those who are around you in the way that God's called you to. Take, take, make the effort to know that your desire to love those whom God has placed you in the midst of is divinely and providentially so. And though you may be very young, who knows how God may be using that to accomplish incredible things in and through the families that you're around. Not only the family that you're in, especially the little ones here, notice, not only the families that you're in, but also it's incredible, it's incredible to know how much good you do to those who are sitting around you in this church. How many Sundays have Many of you left here thinking about the fact that you heard some of the little ones singing the songs louder than you were uh, on Sunday morning and how precious that was, hearing them sing the, the psalms and the hymns that we sing and how precious that was for them, for us to hear their voices in the midst of our congregation. Don't underestimate, though you may be young, how God may be using you. This little girl, this little girl was used in a in an incredible way to preserve Moses like none of the others could because of her concern. Thirdly, I want you to notice the compassion of Pharaoh's daughter. The compassion of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. 
So the idea here is that more than likely, let me set the stage here, uh, Pharaoh's daughter came here, and more than likely it was a place that she would regularly come for the purpose of bathing. She had her other women around her. It says in verse 5, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. The idea there was basically they were watching while she was bathing that nobody would walk up on her. And so these other ladies were walking around, watching the river, looking in the water, making sure no one else was around. And lo and behold, here's a basket, an ark, that the, that's brought then to the Pharaoh's daughter, according to verse 5. Verse 6, when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. It's absolutely astonishing to see the favor and the compassion that God was showing toward Moses during this time. There's no logical reason why Pharaoh's daughter would have had compassion on Moses, that she obviously was able to look at him and at first glance say, this is a Hebrew child. Pharaoh's daughter, they call her that for a reason. Pharaoh's the one who has the edict that says, Anyone that's an Egyptian, all my people, according to verse 22, chapter 1 of Exodus, all my people, anybody people that see a son that is born that's a Hebrew needs to throw him in the Nile. There's no reason for this Hebrew daughter, or this Pharaoh's daughter, to have compassion on Moses, this Hebrew child, except for God himself desiring to have favor on Moses and allowing uh, Moses to have what we call favor among men. God was, God was allowing this woman to have compassion on this child. And this pity and this compassion that she had on this child manifests itself in two amazing and extraordinary ways. The first way is this. <clears throat> it ended up providentially that this compassion manifested itself in the fact that now Moses' mother is the one who nurses his Moses. And not only that, but get this, moms, she gets paid for it. God works it out where this slave woman now is getting paid by none other than the slave owner himself for her to nurse the baby that she placed in the water and knew that God had a calling on his life. So this pity and this compassion that God had shown to Pharaoh daughter and to Moses specifically, what is an amazing manifestation of God's providence. The second thing that shows itself in a particular way and way of this pity and this um, compassion <clears throat> is not only in uh, verse 8 and 9, it speaks of um, them, them being paid. So uh, Pharaoh's daughter says to the sister, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him. Nurse for me, and I will give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Don't underestimate, don't overlook the fact this is the second time this mom is having to hand her child over. Um, very difficult. Very difficult thing. Again, by faith, she's handing this child over, and it says that this child was named by Pharaoh's daughter, Moses, why? Because she said, I drew him out of the water. What's amazing is, is in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who's preaching a sermon in Acts 7, reflects back on this particular text here 
And he says this in Acts chapter 7, verse 20. At this time, Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight. Isn't that interesting? He's not good in mom's sight. At this point, he says it's beautiful in God's sight. So not only that God was showing his favor to Moses. So Moses was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. Notice this. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. Let me explain something to you. Moses wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy. He was the only one who have, could have done that. You know why? Because he was educated in the most elite, privileged education in the world that that day knew. He was, he was educated beyond anything that the other Hebrews could have ever had. And the reason God had placed them uniquely, not only as a Hebrew, but also in the very palace of the Egyptians, was so that he can be educated in such a way that he could write for us and for God's people throughout the centuries this book that we're reading right now. What a wonderful providence. That if the mother or if the the sister or if anybody had done something kind of different, God was preserving Moses and equipping him in unique and specific ways. So unlikely, so unlikely that these three ladies would be incredible instruments in God's hands to preserve Moses who would deliver God's people. God was preserving Moses through the compassion of Pharaoh's daughter. Not only preserving Moses, but also delivering his people. Now, that passage is helpful for us. And it is good for us to see what God is doing and how God works providentially in this passage. Many of us have heard sermons that last about as long as this one has so far. And then they give a gospel presentation and they end. But this morning what I want to do at the latter part, if you give me a little more time, I want you to see how it's absolutely vital. And I'm using this word carefully. Not just helpful, but indeed necessary for us to go to Christ with this passage. And I want to ask and answer two questions as I look at this, because I think this passage will help us. Um, We've gone through Isaiah, we've gone through Genesis, we've gone through other Old Testament passages. But I want us to, as we're coming back again to an Old Testament text, I want you to see that as we work through Exodus every single Sunday, when you walk out that back door... My prayer is that when, you, when we leave a portion of Exodus, I want you to say to yourself, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, that, ma- that message means nothing. If Christ had not lived, died, and rose again, all of those helpful, wonderful things that Shane says is null and void unless Christ was raised. See, brothers and sisters, what I've preached so far, for the most part, not all, but for the most part, what I've said so far could be said by a Jewish rabbi. It could be said by a Mormon preacher. It could be said by a motivational speaker that's secular in all that he says, but he's wanting to motivate people to be courageous, 
to be people of concern, and to be people of compassion. But we are Christians. And so everything gets calibrated around the cross. And everything has to find its meaning and its purpose and its end and its thrust from the cross. And so my my hope is that we're going to look at two things. First, I want you to see why I'm going to go to Christ. Why would I, because many of us have grown up in churches that would read and study Old Testament passages, and we need to be, um, we need to be brave like the, the Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, we, need to, we need to be bold like David. There, there's these, these moral truths, and those are okay. okay? We see here that we, God is calling us to be like Moses' mother, Moses' sister, the Pharaoh's daughter, who are courageous, concerned, and compassionate. Yes, that's true, but there's more. And if this is all I leave you with this morning, then I haven't left you in any hope. Just giving you another thing to do and to kind of <clears throat> try harder to be better like these people in, in the Scripture were. <clears throat> so, why, why am I wanting us to go from the Old Testament to Christ? First reason, <clears throat> the first reason I go to Christ is because that's what the New Testament authors did. So, and this is why I'm using this passage because it helps us some. Take your Bible and go with me. If you want to write this down and look at it later, you can. But I'm going to turn so that if you want to look, you can. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 11, which is the passage we already looked at this morning that I already quoted. Hebrews chapter 11. And my point here is this. The reason I'm going to Christ is because that's what the New Testament authors did. When they read their Old Testament... They read their Old Testament with Christ lenses on. And they were constantly looking at this and saying, why does this matter? Why does this matter if Christ rose from the dead? If, Christ, if this doesn't matter, if Christ rose from the dead or not, then this passage doesn't have any thrust. So we see here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, which is where I quoted earlier, <clears throat> the preacher to the Hebrews here, says in verse 23 of chapter 11, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, many of you who have read Hebrews 11 know that it says, By faith Noah, by faith Abraham, by faith. And it goes through and it talks about all these wonderful people of faith. One of those, or uh, uh, two two of those, is Moses' parents who by faith hid him because the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the edict. And when they get to the end of chapter 11, it says, And all those, though commended, through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. And so, talking about the, the Genesis, Exodus 2 passage in Hebrews eleven twenty three, and what does this preacher do? He takes that Exodus 2 passage, and he says other things about other people that have faith, and then he goes right to, and he makes a conclusion, and he makes his point. He's hammering the pulpit at this point in chapter 12, verse 1, and he says this, Therefore, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who are those witnesses? Noah, Abraham, Moses, and in our case, specifically, Moses' parents, who were the witnesses to this faith. <clears throat> since we're surrounded by such great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside 
every weight and sin which cleanse so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is before us. Verse 2, here's the point, looking to Jesus. What was in the New Testament author of Hebrews? What was in his mind when he was talking about all these Old Testament saints and their faith? He wanted them to look at those Old Testament saints and say, and now I want you to see that all they were doing, because they did not, according to verse um, 39, according to verse 39, they had not received what was promised, which was Christ, since God had provided something better for us. What is that? Christ, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And the idea here is that the Hebrew author, the Hebrew preacher, is wanting, he's wanting us to see that the faith that Moses' mom and dad had was a faith in Christ. Why do you say that, Shane? There's no way they can have a faith in Christ. This is why. Because he mentions their faith, and then he says in verse 2, looking to Jesus, who is the what? The founder of all of our faiths. He's the one that began it in all of us, including Moses' parents. And guess what else? He is also the perfecter of our faith. In other words, he's the one who makes it complete, brings it to its end. The very beginning and the very end and everything in between is a faith in Christ when we look to him. What is the New Testament author doing in the book of Hebrews? He's using the Old Testament narrative, in our case, Exodus 2, and then he's going like a beeline to Jesus and saying the same way that they looked to the Messiah that would come, that was promised. We, brothers and sisters, need to look to Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith. If we're going to live courageous life like Moses' mom, here's the point. Look to Jesus. It isn't just, hey, be courageous. Step up to the plate and do what God's called you to do. No, the New Testament authors are saying this. Look to Jesus. Because he's the author and the perfecter of your faith. He's the beginning and the end of all of your faith. That's the only way you're going to be the courageous one like Moses' mother was. Because in this passage, in chapter 11 and 12, he's saying that's how they had faith in that same way. So, why would I go to Christ first? Because the New Testament authors do it. And I wanted you to see that particular passage because we see there how he's going through and talking about all the people that had faith. And then he ends by saying, look to Jesus. He's making a beeline to Jesus. So the New Testament authors everywhere go to Jesus. They make Jesus the point. And so when we're looking at the Old Testament, as I'm preaching through Exodus, know that every week I'm going to do what I can to pull the Scriptures together so that we can look to Jesus. Not just shoehorn Jesus in or end the message and say, oh, by the way, you need to accept Jesus. That's not how... It's not how it's done. We need to see how the scriptures bring in Jesus and call us to trust in Jesus and to look to him. And so the first reason is because the New Testament authors do it. The second reason, the second reason is because without Christ, there is no gospel. And without the gospel, there is no salvation. And we are condemned. We're condemned. You see, without Christ, there's only law. And when there's only law, brothers and sisters, we're all, we're all to be pitied because we have no hope. 
Now, why am I using this point at this time? First, first reason why I go to Christ is because the Hebrew author talked about our passage, Exodus 2, and then went to Jesus, right? The second reason is because without Christ, there is no gospel. Turn with me to Acts chapter 7. This is the second of three passages in the New Testament that speak of Exodus 2. So I'm not going all over the place trying to find all kinds of other things. I'm actually looking at the passages that are speaking of the text that we're looking at in Exodus 2 this morning. And I want you to see that this happens with all of the texts. I'm not just kind of pulling and grabbing things. The first text was the Hebrew passage that spoke of the parents of Moses, Exodus 2, verses 1 through 10. And, they, they, and, and that pastor, that preacher of Hebrews, went and made a beeline to Jesus, looked to Jesus, founder and perfecter of our faith. The second reason is because without Christ, there's only law. There's no gospel. And when there's only gospel, or excuse me, when there's only law, then there's condemnation. Stephen is preaching in, in Acts chapter 7. He's preaching a sermon. And so here we have a second sermon. The first one, the book of Hebrews is all one sermon, by the way, right? This is a sermon in chapter 7 of Acts, and Stephen is the preacher. And what does Stephen preach? Well, he doesn't get up and talk about his day. He looks back in the Old Testament, and he begins delineating or laying out the path of redemptive history. And in Acts chapter 7, he comes along on a particular portion of text, which is specifically speaking of this, um, this child, this Moses, that is, um, that is being born. And I read it earlier, Acts chapter 7, verse 20. Mo, uh, Stephen's preaching, verse 20 of Acts chapter 7. At this time, Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in the Father's house. Where is he, where is he getting that? Where is Stephen getting that? Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him in up as his own child, his own son, and Moses was instructed in all wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in the words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, he came into his, uh, into his heart to visit his brothers, children of Israel, and it lays out through the text there. Do you see that? Do you see what's happening there? Move down to verse 35. This Moses, he goes through the rest of the story of Moses, and Stephen's preaching. And he continues, he says, this Moses, whom they rejected, he's talking about the people of Israel um, during the time of Exodus, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And so he's saying, Moses was qualified as the leader of God's people. And Israel during that time rejected him. Turn with me, I want you to see how where, where, what, what point is Stephen trying to make? What is he saying? What point is he trying to make with his sermon when he brings up this passage in Exodus 2 and he talks about Moses and the fact that they rejected him during the time of Exodus? The point he's trying to make is this. And this is what, it, you know, Stephen's the first martyr. He gets killed for this. Okay, so it's not some point and they're like, oh, it's not a, that's not a big deal. No, he makes the point and they kill him for it. This is what he says. End of a sermon, Exodus chapter 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. 
so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of, here's Christ, the righteous one. And then he says this, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the very people who sent Christ to the cross just weeks earlier. He's saying, this one, like Moses who was rejected, now you are, have rejected and you sent him to the cross. In other words, he's saying you have betrayed him and you have murdered him. Verse 53, you who received the law as delivered by angels, and here's what you get for the law. You did not keep it. You know what he's saying here? He's saying you reject Christ and just keep the law, the Old Testament. In other words, if I preach to you the Old Testament and never take you to Christ, you're damned. You will not be saved. A a wonderful, encouraging word can be spoken to you this morning. Be more compassionate. Like the Pharaoh's daughter. Be courageous like the mother who set her child in the basket. Be, 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 have concern like the sister. And, and those things are good. They're not bad things. But brothers and sisters, they will not save us. You know why? Because you can't do them. You have never been able to. And apart from Christ working in you, and apart from me pointing you to Christ, you are just like these people. You are stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ear. You have always resisted the Holy Spirit, and you will continue to do so unless you receive the righteous one, who is Christ. Do you see how I've taken two passages, both in Hebrews chapters 11 and 12, and in Acts chapter 7, And in the two passages that speak of our text in Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and in both of those cases, these New Testament authors went to Jesus, and in both of those cases, they saw Jesus as the point. They saw Jesus as the point of our passage back in Exodus chapter 2. And let me go ahead and say, all of the Old Testament, all the law and prophets, Jesus says, speak of me. And if we're not turning people to Christ then I may be giving you some, some wonderful thing to kind of encourage you in the week to come. But if I haven't given you Christ, then you are of all people most to be pitied. For we're still dead in our sins. This is why, Christ, this is why Paul says, I preach nothing but Christ and Him crucified. Because only Christ and Him crucified is what will save us. And so, let me back up for just a second and say that this morning, instead of just willing it and saying, you know what, I need to be courageous, I need to trust in God's promises, and I need to be more courageous for God. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. And instead of saying, you know what, I need to be more compassionate, like Pharaoh's daughter was, who took in this baby Hebrew child, and was willing to bring him in and allow him to be educated. Instead of doing that, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, do not reject the righteous one. Because only in the righteous one will you be saved. That's why I go to Christ and why every Sunday my prayer is that you leave here and say, God, Christ is necessary. 
if I preach a message or if you hear a sermon, and this is the vast majority of what I see as a problem in evangelical churches today, and most of what I hear on TV today, is that whether Jesus lived or not, the sermon would still be true. Most sermons. Because it didn't matter whether Jesus lived or not in most sermons. They're encouraging. They commend people. They say be more compassionate. They say love others more. They say encourage. They, they say live. You know, and, and it's wonderful, isn't it, to know that even our children can be faithful and show concern for their brothers and God can use that. That's a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But your child can be concerned about their brother all day long and never make it to heaven. Because they must trust in Christ. So how do I go to Christ? This is how I want to finalize and bring it together. How do we go to Christ? There are actually three passages that are most clear that speak of Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. In the New Testament. The first one was the Hebrews 11 passage that I showed you just a minute ago. The second one was the Acts 7 passage that... I mentioned to you just a minute ago. And there's a third passage. And guess what the third passage is? What a providence. Mark read it for us this morning. Matthew chapter 2. It's amazing how that works. So Matthew chapter 2 is the third passage that is most clear and distinct of pointing to this Exodus 2 section of our Bibles. And so if you would turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Now, a minute ago, I asked, why should we go to Christ? My point was, we go to Christ because the New Testament authors do, and because without Christ, there is no gospel. Without the gospel, we are lost. That was the two headings, and I used our two passages to talk about that, okay? I want you to see what we're doing here, because it is a little different than what we usually do. Thirdly, I want to talk about this. I want to ask this question. How do we go to Christ? How do I read my Old Testament and then find my way to see Christ in in my, in my Old Testament. There are wrong ways to do it. Okay? Um, Rahab throwing out the red scarlet um, yarn or cloth out the window um, is not a sign of the blood of Jesus that can be redeemed by all people. You know, that, that, there, there, there are people who every time they, they, they hear the word palm, the palm of my hand in Scripture, they think of Jesus' hands being nailed to the cross. That's not a faithful way of going to Jesus from the Old Testament. Okay? How do we go to Jesus from the Old Testament? What's the faithful way? And brothers and sisters, I, I want you to hear this as well. Many of us grew up in churches that didn't do this. Um, Old Testament stories specifically were more moralistic. Now, being moral is a good thing. It just can't save us, okay? The point is, is that I want you to see that what I'm doing here isn't some newfangled way to read the Bible. And it's not something that you need a degree in order to do. That's what I want you to see. This is the way, if you read all the old dead guys, this is how they read their Bible. They saw the Old Testament and the New Testament knit together. That's why when we began as Sovereign Grace... And as we've been going now for 12, almost 13 years, I knew that the majority of us came out of Southern Baptist churches that had very little in our Old Testament and had a lot of our, our New Testament that we've been preached to. That's why I committed to, on Sunday mornings, reading a section out of the Old Testament and a section out of the New Testament. So that week after week after week after week, you get a drip, 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 
drip. And finally, one day, we all begin realizing, wow, this thing's knit together. This thing's supposed to be held together. There's a reason why we've got both. And it's not just to make it look like we're carrying a really big book and so therefore we're smart. It's actually supposed to go together. That's how God's people have read it for years, hundreds of years. Before, just give you broad numbers, honestly, the last hundred years, the Bible became about us. When the Bible became about what is the Bible saying to me to encourage me today, when we began reading the Bible that way, that's when the Bible all of a sudden became no longer about Jesus. And it became about, you know what, you need to be more compassionate. You need to be more concerned like, like Pharaoh's sister, or Moses' sister. You need to be courageous like Moses' mother. That's when the Bible started becoming less about Christ and more about me. But prior to this man-centered reading of the Bible, Christ was the center, Old and New Testament. So, too much may be there, but how do we go to Christ? How do we go to Christ? Let me begin with something that may seem like it's out in the left field. We're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. All of us know that line. Imagine if I took that line and about 20 more from that movie, which is Wizard of Oz. If I took that line and 20 more quotes from that movie, all of you would know what that was. But imagine if somebody had never seen The Wizard of Oz, and I took that line and 20 more, and I handed it to the person and said, this is pretty much the gist of the movie. Would they have any idea what the movie was about? They would, they would think it's just absolutely weird. Completely, completely unintelligible. And yet, we read our Bibles that way. <laughs> we take verse here and a verse there and a verse here. <clears throat> Many of us have had Sunday school, right, Mike? Exodus chapter 2. <clears throat> and we had Sunday school lesson after Sunday school lesson after Sunday school lesson on Exodus. And yet, we've never seen that Jesus is in Exodus 2. Because we're reading Bible verses, and we're not connecting our Bible together. If we read any other book like we so often read our Bibles, we wouldn't understand a thing that it said. Because we're not supposed to be reading our Bibles. The verse numbers weren't there originally. And so, if we take a verse here, and a verse there, and a verse here, and a verse there, and we try to pull it together, and we can't figure out why our Bibles don't go together, it's because we don't have our Bibles. When I said, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto, your mind immediately went to an entire movie. And you knew exactly where that quote went in the movie. She wasn't in Kansas, was she? No. She all of a sudden was in a weird land with all kinds of bright colors, right? And she's holding what? Who's Toto? The dog. You've got all kinds of context around that. And yet, when we think of that line, we think of an entire storyline. When God's people in the New Testament were quoting their Old Testament and they quoted a verse... They assumed that when they quoted a verse, that everybody that was listening to them, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, because they were Jews, that when they quoted a verse from the Old Testament, they didn't have, oh, that's verse so-and-so. They said, oh, that's this narrative in the Old Testament. They knew the entire story and how everything went together and how everything was pieced together. And as long as we're reading our Bible and say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, and couldn't even find it in our Bible if we wanted to, and if we did, look at it and say, wow, that has nothing to do with my golf game. Go figure. I've always heard it on the ninth hole, right? 
And, and so we take our Bibles and we bust them all to pieces and then we can't figure out why we can't put them together. It's not really rocket science. This is what I want to encourage you in. I make that whole scenario so that I can encourage you in this way. Read your Bible in broad sweeps. Many of you can't do that day in and day out. I realize that. But don't read, if you're only reading verses right now, read paragraphs. If you're only reading paragraphs right now, read chapters. Try to read bigger pieces of your Bible and see the entire story as it fits together. I was reading this morning of somebody that's in prison that was telling me that they read their daily bread every day. And they're so glad because their daily bread, I'm reading the letter here, this person's in prison, they're reading their daily bread, and it talks about prisoners being in, in jail, and they're lonely. And, uh, and then this person goes on talking about how, how um, great it is that God cares for those who are lonely. And I went and looked up the passage in Hebrews, and it's actually about people that are in prison because they're there for their faith, not because they've done some crime. And that people are visiting them in prison, Why? Because they're fellow Christians, and they're wanting to take care of them. They're not visiting them in prison because, because they're just people that ended up in prison for whatever reason. You see, they're not reading their Bible in its entirety. And so my point here is this. How do we find Christ in all of Scripture, and specifically the Old Testament? We've got to read it in, a, in its broad scope. Now let me start making some specifics here. When we read Exodus, we find, as I mentioned before, and you can find this in the text, is that Exodus was written to a second generation of Jews. They're not, they're the children of the people that came out of Egypt, right? They're the children that came out of the people that came out, that, that came out of Egypt. And so the, the parents came out of Egypt. They were not a faithful when they went to the promised land. Moses said, God said, I'm going to send your children into the promised land. You're going to die out here in the wilderness. Moses is writing this book, Exodus, so that the second generation, as they go into the promised land, they're going to be faced with all kinds of challenges. Many of them didn't see God deliver them out of Egypt. And so they're wondering, is God going to preserve us when we get into the promised land? Is God going to take care of us? Is he able to order and orchestrate things so that we're going to be able to be cared for? Because we're going into this land, and it's a very scary place. We're not sure if God can do that or not. Can God deliver us? Can God get us into the promised land and do what he says he's going to do? Now, <clears throat> that's the first audience. That's the, now, that's not the only audience. Moses wrote, and many people have read it since then, but that's the primary audience that Moses had when he was thinking of this. These people who are going into the promised land. We've got to keep that in mind when we're reading our Bibles and specifically the books to see what is it that Moses is going after here? What's the author and who is it he's writing to? And then when he promises at the end of Exodus chapter 2, verse 10, and it says all of a sudden there's a punctuation. Nobody's named. And then in verse 10 it says she named him Moses. All of a sudden here's a name. Because she said, I drew him out of the water. And then as we read through the rest of Exodus, and you wouldn't see this unless you read several chapters at a time, you keep hearing this word out. They came out of this, they came out of this, they came out of here, they came out of there, came out of this, and all of a sudden they're coming out of what? Egypt. They're coming out of Egypt at the Passover. And you keep seeing this word pop up over and over again. And so in the same way that Moses was being described as one who came out of Egypt, what does Matthew do in Matthew chapter 2? He says, Jesus... Matthew's making this connection with his Old Testament. He says, Jesus, because Joseph was told, go to Egypt and hide. Why was Joseph going to go to Egypt to hide? Because there was a genocide. That's weird. 
I've heard of that somewhere before. Wait a minute. It's Moses. It's the person of Moses that was in the middle of a genocide. And he was running and he ended up in Egypt. And then at the end of, it, at the end of that passage in Matthew, it says, and, and the reason he did that is because it was supposed to be said that this one, the son who was going to be the Messiah, was supposed to come out of Egypt. Was supposed to come out of Egypt. And so when you read through the Gospel of Matthew, you'll find some interesting things. Not only was Matthew, um, not only did Matthew take Moses and start connecting him, but we find that um, he was named, Moses was named as one who was drawn out of the water for a particular task. Jesus was named, excuse me, let me find my notes here. Jesus was named in Matthew 1, 21, and it said, excuse me, let me back up and say it this way. Exodus 2.10, she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. In Matthew 1.21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Do you see what's happening here? That sounds really similar. And then we find that Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by Satan. Huh. Moses was in the wilderness for 40 years. Then Moses goes on top of a mountain, Mount Sinai. What does he do up there? He receives the law. What does Jesus do? He goes up on top of a mountain, and he reiterates the law and says, I'm the fulfillment of it. Over and over again, Matthew's saying, the, the shadows and the pictures and the imagery of what Moses was doing to deliver his people has come to full fruition in Jesus Christ. Jesus, it's like, it's like going into a room that's, that lights are off and you see shadows and pictures of furniture and beds and stuff around you. That's Moses. And then you flip on the light and all of a sudden the reality of all those things are clear in front of you. That's Jesus. Matthew, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, if you read Matthew thinking of Moses in the book of Exodus, you'll find that Matthew's making connections to Moses all along the way saying this one who is Jesus is the Messiah. He's the greater Moses that Moses himself said would come, and he's the one who will come and deliver his people. He's the one who will accomplish great things for God's people. He will the one that will preserve his people. Let me close this way. I'm saying it this way. Will God deliver, will God preserve this second generation of Jews who are going into the promised land? How, do they, how can they know that God will do that for them? How can they be confirmed? What can they look to to have confidence that God will preserve them? Moses is saying, look to my birth. In the same way that God was able to preserve me through my mother and through my sister and through the Pharaoh's daughter, in the same way that God was able to preserve me, God will be able to preserve you. Look to Moses and see that in the same way God was able to do that, he can do that for you. How do we know? How can we be sure, brothers and sisters, that God will preserve us? I'm not talking about like tomorrow and the next day, but I'm talking about that last day when we breathe our last and we close our eyes that we're going to open them again in glory. How do we know God's going to do what he says he's going to do? How can we be sure that he's going to preserve us through this very scary thing called death? And that he's going to bring us onto the other side and we're going to come into his presence. What has God given to us that we can be sure that he's going to preserve us on that final day of death and judgment? 
But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of all of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he, here's this, delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. How can we be sure that God will preserve us? We look to Christ. Because God preserved Christ through death. And he left us a message in his Bible saying, God did it for Christ. Look to him and we can be sure with confidence that God will preserve us. He will deliver us, brothers and sisters, from this profoundly broken world. He'll deliver us. Let us pray.